0: Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders for our church. If this is your first time with us, we are delighted to have you here. Thank you for uh, coming to worship the Lord with us. What do you do when people turn against you? When those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ come after you for daring to follow him, or when nitpicking and backstabbing are the standard operating procedure in the workplace? What do you do when your friends turn against you and become your enemies? The book of Proverbs refers to each of these situations as strife. And last week we began to acquire wisdom regarding the causes and complexities of such strife. This week, as we continue our series in the book of Proverbs, I'd like to get much more practical. It's one thing to try to keep aloof from strife and to recognize the potential for strife so you can back away from it before it's too late. But what do you do when the dam breaks and all the water has come rushing out? When your enemies come after you and there's no possibility of staying away, how do wise men and women conduct themselves when stakes are high? Because contrary to popular belief, God does not ask his people to live as idiotic simpletons or punching bags. No, God wants his people to overcome strife and evil. But the way you overcome it really matters. To win a fight in the wrong way is to lose. So this morning I'm going to walk through five tactics found along the way of wisdom according to the book of Proverbs. Those who fear the Lord and do not despise his instruction will humble themselves and fight clean. The wise overcome their enemies not by winning, but by dying. Here's what it looks like. Let me pray for us again as we dive into it. Father in heaven, please open our eyes and grant us insight by the power of your spirit. That we might fight clean, that we might fight like you would have us fight, that we might fight like Christians, like our Lord Jesus. And we ask that you would help us now and please grant faith in your promises and the forgiveness available to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The first tactic is that of waived rights waived rights. In many of our fights, it seems that we often want to begin by asserting our rights. In particular, the right to defend ourselves and our right to see justice served. But there is a time, excuse me, there is a time and a place for exerting such rights, but the middle of strife, the middle of a heated conversation is typically not that time. Consider what Proverbs says about the way of wisdom. Look with me at chapter 20 verse 22. Do not say, I will repay evil, wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. This is the word of the Lord. This is the way of the Lord. We tend to think it's a basic human right to take vengeance on evildoers. So if a bully trips an innocent kid walking down the highway, nobody would... The highway, I meant the hallway. (laughs) If a bully trips an innocent kid walking down the hallway, nobody would complain if that kid got the bully back by tripping him in another hallway. Similarly, if someone shouts and swears at you, it might feel really good to shout and to swear back at them. It feels like justice. But wise people who are drawing ever closer to the Lord, they know that the Lord will deliver them. To seek vengeance or to seek to pay the person back is only to get yourself in the way of what God is doing. Because if your opponent is right, then you are in the wrong by attacking them for it. And if your opponent is truly evil and doing the wrong thing, God already has his laser sight trained on them. And when you seek vengeance against them, you are only placing yourself into his line of fire. And it's much better for you to wait until the Lord sees fit to pull that trigger. It's better for you to waive your presumed right for justice and let the Lord handle it for you. Now, in the midst of strife, what are some ways we might be tempted to repay evil? Well, an immediate temptation is to win the battle of wits. Excuse me. When someone says something harsh or untrue about you, It can be tempting to want to clear your name and to set the record straight. It's tempting to demand your right to defend your reputation. But there is a time and a place not to do this. Look at chapter 27, verse 2. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Friends, you don't want to put yourself in a position of trying to make yourself look good, listing all the things you've done right, multiplying words to try to make people understand all the ways they've misunderstood you or they've mistreated you. The wisest course is often to keep quiet and let others defend you. It's a sweet thing to see others stand up to a bully on your behalf? Or perhaps the Lord has put you in a place to stand up to a bully on someone else's behalf? Now, please understand that I'm speaking to a very specific context. I'm speaking to the context of strife when you are in the middle of a heated discussion or an attack of some sort. Now, if your opponent wants to have a reasonable conversation with you, then go for it. Or if the situation escalates to the point where authorities get involved or an appropriate individual investigates the truth of a complex situation, then by all means, the time has come to defend yourself, to divulge the truth of what happened and what your motives were. But when you are in the middle of a fight with a fool... It is not the time or the place to set the record straight or to present your resume of good deeds. Instead, it is a time to give up your rights and wait for the Lord to deliver you. Perhaps he will do so by providing a third party or an investigator who will listen to reason. Now, why is the middle of a fight not the best time to defend yourself? It's because it will serve the situation and it will serve yourself and it will serve the Lord for you to demonstrate wisdom in this moment and not folly. Let the fool tie their own noose and make themselves look ridiculous in their accusation. Look at chapter 29, verse 11. A fool... Gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Friends, the Lord honors such wisdom when a person waives their right to speak their mind or to defend their actions. But I know it feels like death to do this. What gives someone the insight and the inner strength to maintain such wise restraint and know what not to say? Well, that's a great question, and I'll I'll get to it in a moment. Let me first show you what you ought to say in the moment. What you ought to say, this is point number two, genuine questions. This is our second tactic. Genuine questions. The primary things that emerge from a mouth of wisdom in the heat of strife are questions. Now, why do I say that? Look at chapter 18, verse 13. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. You see, the fool always comes out swinging and spouting accusations, but the wise person knows up front that there is always more to a situation than meets the eye. Even when I feel incredibly offended by all the terrible and false things that someone has said about me, I know that I still do not yet have all the facts. So the wisest and most important thing I can do is to hear out my accuser. No matter how ridiculous their accusations may appear, something remarkable happens when instead of going right into their defense, a wise person instead asks questions. I didn't realize you felt that way. Can you please tell me more? Or... What did I say or do that caused you so much pain? Or, can you please help me to understand why that was so hurtful to you? Or, what did you think I meant by that? Or, how could I have done it differently? How would you like to see our relationship improve? It's amazing how disarming such questions can be. Perhaps you really did something foolish and it needs to change. And this person is just not expressing their concern in a wise or persuasive way. But if you are wise, you can still learn from it. But even when your opponent is only a fool who rages or vents, then asking lots and lots of questions will ensure that you have understood and can accurately represent their perspective. Perhaps their rage simply comes from their having felt misunderstood and working to understand them clearly will defuse the entire situation. Or it's also possible that the more they clarify their perspective, the dumber it will appear even to them. then you might not have to say anything at all to defend yourself. Their own words will condemn them, especially in the view of onlookers. Because make no mistake, if you are truly acting righteously and they are acting wickedly, it will be noticeable to others. Look at chapter 15, verse 28. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer But the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. This is why the first point about waiving your rights is so important. Because if your opponent's mouth pours out evil things, and in vengeance your mouth pours out evil things, then you have gained nothing. And you have lost your greatest advantage in the fight, which is wisdom. The Lord does not want his children to be steamrolled by their enemies. He wants his people to overcome their enemies. So don't give up your greatest advantage by failing to hear the other person out in as much detail as possible. The more you let them explain themselves, the more likely they are to grab a bear trap off the shelf, place it on the ground, pry it open, set the trigger, and stick their own foot in it for you. Now, I'm not saying this to be mean to opponents, but only to help you be wise in a heated situation. The Lord honors such wisdom when a person chooses not to defend themselves, but makes sure that they first have fully understood their opponent's perspective. But I know it feels like death to do this. It's so unfair. What gives you the insight and the stamina to ask so many questions and try to understand the person who refuses to try to understand you? Well, that's a great question. I'll get to it in a moment. Let me first show you what should happen when it comes time to move beyond questions and finally start providing some of your own answers. Point number three is compelling truth. Once you've waived your rights and you've asked genuine questions, your third tactic is to speak compelling truth. And when it is time for you to speak and start answering, it's important to do two things. We need to mind our tone and speak only verifiable truth. Okay? Mind your tone and speak only verifiable truth. This is how you speak compelling truth. These two things will make your answers as compelling as possible. First, let's talk about minding your tone. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. This is perhaps one of the clearest verses in all of Proverbs, and yet it is perhaps also one of the most frequently ignored verses in all of Proverbs. If you have done the work of calming your enemy down by asking them loads of questions and by communicating how much you want to understand their perspective, why would you now wreck the whole thing by responding to them with a harsh word? Why would you let your disappointment and your frustration take over? Because a harsh word will accomplish nothing except stirring their anger back up. On the other hand, a soft answer will turn away their wrath. A patient, gentle tone is your best bet for keeping the temperature low and respectful. Even if they can't mind their tone, you can. Mind yours. If you trust in Jesus, you have his spirit within you. You have all the power you need to mind your tone. And one evidence of the spirit's presence in your life is self-control. So don't lose the fight while you're on top. Now is the time to maintain your strong position. So mind your tone. And having given attention to your tone, another easy-to-forget battle tactic is to speak only verifiable truth. Look at the very next verse in Proverbs, verse 2 of chapter 15. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pours out folly. You see, if you are wise, your tongue will commend knowledge. In other words, you will formally praise the truth. Your tongue will present what is true as something worthy of approval and acceptance. Now, maybe that sounds clear and self-evident, but why don't we do that most of the time? If your response to your enemy begins with, you always then you are not commending knowledge. You are pouring out folly because nobody always says or does the wrong thing. If you frame your response to your enemy as, I feel that, then you are probably not commending knowledge because the main issue is not how you feel. It is what was actually said or done. If you allow your severe emotions to warp the facts in any way and you exaggerate or you twist, you are not commending knowledge because we are never justified to twist reality or rewrite history in order to get our own way. Now I'm not saying that it's immature or that it's sinful to have emotions in a complex difficult conflict. Okay, it's normal. The emotions are going to be there. But the wise person will make sure that emotions are servants to the truth and not masters of the truth. For example, I have found the following formula to be helpful in difficult emotional conversations. When it's time for me to speak, I often try to do it this way. When you said or did what you said or did, Just focus on the observable behavior. When you did this, I was tempted to think or feel this, but what was your reason for saying that or doing that? Can you help me to understand your perspective better? And we're back to questions. See, here's the facts of what happened. Here's how I was tempted to interpret it, but can you help me to understand your perspective on it. This helps me to avoid leading with unhelpful labels. You know, that thing we love to do. Of course I had to do what I did since I was dealing with an aggressive bully. Or if you weren't such a liar, this whole thing would be a lot easier. Now, there is a time and a place to label things biblically, but first, we must be able to agree on the bare facts of what actually happened or didn't happen. And this approach helps me to avoid exaggerating my case. You know, if you only knew how many people agree with me and are really mad at you, and we sort of exaggerate, we build up this case. A wise person will commend knowledge speaking only verifiable truth. They won't just pour out all the foolish things that first come to mind. They don't treat their interpretation of a situation as though it were a fact. They are extraordinarily patient before drawing conclusions or rendering judgments. And the Lord honors such wisdom. When a person minds their tone and speaks only verifiable truth, that is how they make the truth compelling. But I know it feels like death to do this. It's so unfair, isn't it? What gives you the self-control and the courage to speak only truth with a gentle tone? especially if you are the only person in the room who seems to care about gentle truth? That's a great question. I'll get to it in a moment. Let me just first show you how crucial it is to own up to your own mistakes as quickly as possible. Okay, point number four is authentic confession. Make authentic confession. One challenging thing about a heated situation of strife is that all of our self-protective alarm systems kick in. So we are quick and eager to defend our every word and deed. And with high stakes and roiling emotions, it can be easy to rewrite history in our minds and to tell ourselves that we are really the good guys here. But the way of wisdom is to have patience and to not be so quick to do this. Look at chapter 20, verse 25. It is a snare to say rashly it is holy and to reflect only after making vows. See, this verse is saying that we shouldn't be so quick to label our actions or our motivations as holy in the heat of the moment, when we're acting rashly. Don't be quick to judge yourself as being without guilt. Don't let fear drive you to make irrational excuses for yourself. Instead, slow things down, take time to reflect, and perhaps even get counsel from other witnesses if possible. Because even when we think we have done everything right, we must still acknowledge that we are but sinners saved by grace. So even if my conscience is clean, it's always true that I could have been more kind than I was, more aware than I was, or more loving toward my neighbor than I was. So before you begin to defend yourself, I wholeheartedly encourage you to consider confessing as much as possible. And I don't mean groveling and I don't mean making stuff up. I simply mean that it is appropriate and helpful to own up to as many of the accusations as you can in good conscience. I've heard people say that you shouldn't confess to any sin if you don't think you've committed any sin. And there is some truth to that. Let's say I proclaim a clear truth from Scripture and somebody gets really mad and offended by it. I'm not then going to confess to having committed a hate crime for speaking the truth of Scripture. Okay, let's not do that. Isaiah pronounces a curse on those who see something good and label it as evil, or who see something evil and label it as good. But even with that said, it is simply a fact of reality that I am still a sinner who has not yet been made perfect. I should be able to find something, anything, in the accusations against me that has a ring of truth. And I can take ownership of that, no matter how small it feels, call it what it is, and confess it authentically without a hint of bitterness or resentment. Look at chapter 20, verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin. Who can say that? It's a rhetorical question. The answer in Proverbs is, well, nobody can. But we know today only the Lord Jesus can, but I certainly can't. And so in the midst of strife, accusations are being thrown around and walls are being built on all sides. Each person becomes like a walled city, like the bars of a castle. And typically each one of them refuses to give even an inch from fear that the other person will stretch it into a mile. And amid such hostility... In a stalemate, it can be incredibly disarming for a wise person to have the courage to step up and say, you know what, you're right about the fact that I did something or other. I really shouldn't have done that and I wish now that I hadn't. I can see how painful that was. And I ought to have realized that even before I did it. I would like to do that differently next time. Will you please forgive me and help me to improve in that area? You know how disarming that is? When someone sees your defenses come down? The Lord honors such wisdom. When a person doesn't make excuses and blame everybody else, but they take ownership to confess everything they can legitimately confess as sin or weakness. And when they do so in an authentic way, not just going through the motions. But I know it feels like death to do this. It's so unfair, isn't it? What gives you the courage to put yourself out there so vulnerably? Especially if you are the only person in the room who is taking any responsibility for their own actions. Doesn't this just open the door for them to now blame you for everything that went wrong in the relationship? Well, that's a great question. And it's finally time to answer it. Because the book of Proverbs asks us in situations of strife to waive our rights, to ask genuine questions, to speak compelling truth, and to make authentic confession. Only one thing will motivate and empower men and women of wisdom to do such incredibly risky things. And that one thing is an awareness of who exactly it is we are obligated to please. And so the last point this morning is God-pleasing. This is the final tactic. God-pleasing. You see, in the middle of strife, some people are desperate to please themselves, so they fight until they win. And other people are desperate to please their enemies. So they stop fighting and roll over just to calm things down. But the Lord says there is only one whom we must please. And if we do in fact please him, it changes everything. Look at chapter 16 verse 7. When a man's ways please the Lord... He makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. When a man's ways please God, or a woman's ways please God, God grants them the gold medal of peace with their enemies. Is that for real? Well, I'll tell you, it's not a magic formula such that if you plug in certain inputs, you are guaranteed an immediate output of peace. Often that peace is a long time in coming and it comes through much sweat and pain. But the Lord can do it. And if you wish to have peace with your enemies, you will never get it by shouting, by defending yourself, by attacking them, or by taking revenge. You can't earn true peace by winning the argument. And you can't win true peace by letting the enemy steamroll you. Such peace is only God's to grant when a person's ways please him. So the big question this morning is, what does it take to please him? What must God's people do in order for God to grant them victory over their enemies? And there is only one person we can look to to answer this question for us. We look at our Lord Jesus Christ. Because make no mistake, he certainly did triumph over his enemies. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. He... This is God the Father. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Jesus. So the Father disarmed all those spiritual forces of wickedness, all the enemies, by triumphing over them in Jesus, Jesus conquered all the demonic spiritual powers who declared war on him. He put them to shame. He triumphed over them. But what was his tactic? How did he do it? The two verses immediately prior to this explain it. Look at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him... With Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Friends, we were Jesus' enemies. We were dead in our sins. Maybe some of us still are. And if you pledge your allegiance to Jesus, it shows that He made you alive by forgiving all your trespasses. Every vile thought, every rebellious word we have ever spoken, all of it can be forgiven. (laughs) Having been nailed to the cross along with Jesus, and his death was his greatest triumph. First Corinthians tells us that if the demonic powers of the world knew what was happening, they never would have crucified Jesus. Because by crucifying him, they thought they were cutting off his work once and for all. But in reality, his death was his victory. His cross was his throne, so Jesus makes the spiritually dead come to life and he defeats the supernatural powers by giving up his life so we can be forgiven. This, this is what empowers our obedience to God's call of wisdom. Because friends, the call of wisdom is a call to come and Die with Jesus. It's not a call to defend your rights or to set the record straight. It's not a call to win the argument or to get your way. It is a call to die to your self-interest for the good of others. These are the Bible's marching orders for God's people when they are surrounded by enemies. Because in dying, we transmit life. By pursuing peace, we win the war. By laying down our arms, we disarm those who attack us. This is the only way we could ever waive our rights or ask questions when we so desperately want to explain ourselves. Or persuade people with the truth when it would feel better to just crush them. Or to confess to our own wrongdoing when the other person's wrongdoing seems so much bigger and clearer. So in the end, Christians see their enemies the way the Lord Jesus saw us when we were his enemies. Not as vessels of wrath prepared for destruction but as needy sinners awaiting redemption. That is what will empower you to do something they would never expect you to do. Look at back at Proverbs chapter 25, verse 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. So you see, there is a way to win the fight and it's not by crushing them down. It's by dying to yourself and serving them. If you try to win the fight, you will lose. But if you are willing to die to your own interests, if you waive your rights, if you ask questions instead of making demands if you speak compelling truth if you make authentic confession whenever appropriate and in all things you seek only to please the lord by trusting in the lord jesus christ you will overcome your enemies and the lord will reward you let's pray our father in heaven Lord, this is a kind of fight that the world does not know what to do with. Most in our generation have never seen people fight like this. So we ask, Lord, that you would please help us to fight like Jesus, to lay down our lives, strengthen and empower us, that we might trust that you have our best interests in mind, that you will reward us, you will deliver us, And so we don't have to get our justice right here, right now. We can wait for you. Please help us to trust Jesus and to recognize him as the only one who can bring peace on earth. The only solution to helping us as humanity to stop being so cruel to one another. Please strengthen us by grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.